we've been speaking about self-sufficiently knowable, substantially established uh, phenomenon, and imputedly knowable phenomenon. We looked at uh, the differentiation between the two in the Vaibhashika and uh, Sautrantika systems. We saw that uh, in the Sautrantika system, we don't need to go back over the Vaibhashika again, but uh, in the Sautrantika system, self-sufficiently, substantially established uh, phenomenon are uh, all non-static phenomenon. Uh, Static phenomenon are exclusively imputably knowable. Vibhashka included static phenomenon as uh, substantially established. And uh, imputedly knowable phenomenon included both the substantially established non-congruent affecting variables or persons as well as the imputedly um, uh, existent static phenomenon including selflessness of persons. We uh, spoke about how uh, when we uh, look at imputedly knowable phenomenon in the Sautrantika system, the way that uh, they're described is that uh, whether they're substantially established or not, uh, we need to cognize the basis for imputation first, and then uh, the uh, uh, at, in the next uh, phase or moment, we're able to cognize both the basis of imputation and the imputedly knowable phenomenon together. Whereas self-sufficiently knowable phenomenon, you just need to cognize them by themselves without relying on cognizing the ba- a basis for imputation first. So this is what we uh, covered. And uh, another example for understanding the uh, way in which we know imputedly knowable uh, phenomenon uh, is uh, when we uh, hear someone speaking on the phone. When we hear, what do we hear? I mean, first we hear, um, well, let's describe it differently. What, from the Sautrantika point of view, Uh, is the objective phenomenon that we're listening to. The objective phenomenon is the sound, the voice, the person. That's what uh, we are hearing. And objectively existent means that uh, it has findable existence, as it uh, by itself without being an object of cognition. So even before anybody cognizes them or sees them or hears them, they substantially exist. They are the source of the external source of cognition of them. So they have objective existence from the Sautrantika point of view. So when we hear the the sound of the voice of the person on the phone, what are we hearing? What is the appearing object? The appearing object is the object that uh, arises, you know, that we are, in this case, what we're focusing on. So the appearing object is the objective phenomenon, the substantial entity. So what we hear on the phone is the sound of the voice and the person. I mean, you can extend it and say the sound of the voice and the body that's making the sound and the, the person. Okay, but uh, what is the involved object? The involved object in the uh, first moment is just the sound and that object as a a whole, the voice. 
because we only hear one moment of uh, a sound at a time. But you'd have to say you could put it together and it's the voice of a body speaking. So that's what uh, we would... What does that even mean, actually? Like a, 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 mo the mo a moment of a sound? Because the sound is a wave and it's movement. A sound is a wave and it's a movement? Well, from a Buddhist point of view, they uh, divide everything into discrete moments and we only experience one moment at a time. So only the present moment is happening now and the previous moment is no longer happening and the next moment is not yet happening. So all that we can cognize it in one moment is that aspect of the wave, if we want to use the Western uh, scientific uh, description of sound, that we hear in one moment. You only hear one moment at a time. We only see one moment of something at a time. We had discussed that with the uh, observation of motion, that uh, we only can see motion into over a period of uh, a few moments. But uh, this is speaking about the uh, cognition of a whole object, a whole common sense object. And a whole common sense object is like, uh, well, there are many examples. The uh, one that is uh, the easiest to understand is a body. We see colored shapes, or we hear sounds. We, he we see moments of color shapes, and we hear moments of uh, sounds of a voice. But uh, the big debate between what's called the true aspectarian and the false aspectarian views is whether or not we actually non-conceptually see or hear the whole conventional object. A whole conventional object is something that is uh, that extends over all the sensory data of the object. So it's not just the sight, but also the sound and the smell and the taste and the physical sensation of a body. So it extends over all of that, which uh, um, anyway, that gets into a debate, you know, which of these qualities you actually see in one moment. But uh, that's for a later discussion. And uh, a conventional whole object also extends over time. It doesn't just exist for one moment. And so it is a synthesis when we speak about uh, uh, all bodies called a collection synthesis. And it's, there's also a kind synthesis. It's uh, um, some kind of thing. Now, the true aspectarian, which is the position that the group must take, is that uh, when we see the colored shapes of a body, we also are seeing the whole body. That uh, you can't say that we're not. Whereas the uh, false aspectarian, which is uh, the non-Galupa position, is that uh, no, the whole body is a conceptual construct and we don't actually see a whole body. Now, that has many consequences for cognition theory and also for the whole uh, analysis of uh, um, what, what exists, what, you know, what truly exists, what doesn't truly exist, how things exist. It has a lot of consequence for meditation, what non-conceptual meditation actually means, and so on. That's a, a very uh, widespread uh, there are many widespread uh, amplifications of that differentiation. And there's a lot of debate about it, of course. And this uh, distinction between true and false aspectarian is then carried on 
through the galupa and non-galupa analysis of all the tennis systems going beyond Satrantika and above Chittamatra and Madhyamaka. But uh, here we're looking at the Galupa version of it, so the true aspectarian version. And in that version we actually see the body, so we actually hear the voice of a body when we hear the sound on the uh, telephone. So it's a body and that's speaking, and it's a person that's speaking, and it's a sound that uh, we're hearing. So we're cognizing all of them. All of them are the appearing object. But what can we actually know? What do we cognize with certainty in that first moment? Only that uh, it's a sound and the voice of the, and the voice, basically. But to be able to cognize with certainty that it's a person, voice of a person, as opposed to the voice of a uh, computer-generated sound. That's too subtle to be able to distinguish in that first moment. And so it's only in the second moment or second phase of the uh, cognition, and it's still non-conceptual, that we're able to discern that it's a person speaking. Or it could just be sounds, and you don't really... In one moment, a sound that you hear is what? It's basically maybe one syllable or part of a syllable of a word. So, do we know that it's a person? When we just hear that one sound, then we would have to hear a little bit more to know that it's a person. Now, that doesn't mean that we put it into the category of persons speaking or know who that person is. That comes with conceptual cognition, both non-conceptual cognition. First phase is the voice, the sound and the voice, and the uh, second phase, both the sound and voice, and the person. The person is imputedly knowable. So when we talk about in the first moment, the appearing object is the, you know, the sound or the colored shapes if we're looking, and the uh, body and the uh, person anyway, that uh, all three are the appearing object, the only involved objects that uh, we know with certainty would be the sound and the body, or the colored shapes and the body, the voice. In the second moment, all three colored shapes of the sound and the body uh, or voice and the person would be the involved objects. Do you follow that? I mean, we discussed that uh, last week as well, but I think hearing a voice on the telephone is a little bit uh, easier to uh, understand. Can you define the term involved object? Involved object is the actual object that's known. Oh, yeah, okay. The appearing object? The appearing object is what arises. It arises as if it were, the definition, as if it were directly in front of the consciousness. Could you say the example of this telephone? So what is appearing object? And what the appearing object is the sound, a voice, and a person. That's the that's objectively what's appearing. That's what you hear. Well, that's what you see when you look at somebody. You see colored shapes, a body, and a person. But what do you actually ascertain? In other words, what do you distinguish clearly in that first moment? 
colored shapes in a body or sound in a voice. That would be the first moment. So you don't actually ascertain or distinguish that it's a that the person and only in the next moment do you also distinguish and know with certainty the person together with the colored shapes on the body or together with the sound and the voice. I think I followed that, but again, what's... So in the moment one... Don't look at that. Because when you're listening to the sound of... In moment one, the person is the appearing object only. The colored shapes in the body or the sound and the voice are both the appearing object and the involved object. In moment two, the colored shapes in the body are both the appearing object and the involved object, and the person as well is the appearing object and the implied object. So the person is imputedly knowable. First the basis appears and is known as the involved object, and then both the basis and what's imputed, the, what's an imputation on it, the person is known with certainty, both involved and appearing objects. Okay, let that sink in. I mean, does that make sense from your experience of how you see things? It made sense in terms of motion. You see an object in one place and then the next uh, moment you see it in another place and it's only after the second moment that you can actually see motion, even though in the first moment it actually is in motion. Or impermanence, change, non-staticness is the same thing. These are imputedly knowable. These are non-congruent affecting variables. They are objective phenomena from Sautrantika point of view. So if that's the case with motion and change and aging, these sort of things, it's also the case with person. A good example is uh, that it makes sense if one comes to a place that is completely unknown or enters a room which is completely unknown. Mm-hmm. So then, in, in this in, in that in in this moment, if I just try to recall, it's a little more like you at first get the impressions and then uh, then one recognizes more that one needs some time to get. To put the things together, where one is to get oriented and find out, ah, there's a person there, there are children there, whatever. Well, you have to make a distinction between when you uh, walk into a room and it's dark, knowing that you need a second cognition in order to be certain about what you're seeing. That's a different way of knowing. Mm-hmm that uh, I need to get more information in order to, you know, know it for uh, certainty. But uh, you need to differentiate between seeing a table and seeing a person. You don't need to see the parts of a table first and then you see the table. Whereas with a uh, person, you need to see a body first, and then you see a person. Both of them, however, might be objects when you walk into a dark room that you know that you need to have a further information, you have to put the light on in order to see exactly what it is. So even when you put the light on, 
to see exactly that, you know, in this dark room, that's the table and that's a, per that's a person. You would first see the body with the person and you would be, you would, the involved object would be the, what you know with certainty would be the body and then the next moment, the body and the person. The problem is that it's so slow. You know, I mean, not so slow, but the analysis is based on slowing down a very, very fast process. And then if we add conceptual cognition, that would be in the third moment. The third moment is that you fit it into a category of a person. And then you could have the name of the person and who it is. So, when we have the conceptual cognition, then, again, it's the same thing, but slightly different. The appearing object now is a category. That's what's directly in front of the uh, consciousness, as it were. It's a category of a person, fitting to, you know, together with all other persons that we've known. And it could be a specific person, which would fit into the category of all the different times that we've encountered or thought about this person. That's the category, a static phenomenon. So that's the appearing object. It doesn't appear though because it has no form. So through it, what actually appears would be the colored shapes and body and the person, what we had in moment two when it was non-conceptual, and the mental hologram representing it. So if the person is not actually there, we're just thinking of them, only the mental hologram appears, but you would have to say through that mental, that category and the mental hologram, you know the person. But you only know the person together with the body also appearing, or the voice also appearing. The subtle selflessness of a person is that there's no such thing as a person that you can just know self-sufficiently without the basis actually appearing. So all of that is quite abstract, I'm sorry. But uh, what we need to do is to try to fit that into our experience. When you think of somebody, what's going on? You can't just think of somebody. When you think of somebody, there has to be something that represents that person even if it's just the mental sound of their name. Right? That's what actually has some sort of form. That's what appears. But the actual appearing object, the one that's right smack in front of the consciousness, to use it figuratively, obviously it's not, is the category, and it's through the category, they say it partially veils what appears. It also gives the deceptive appearance that that 
representation truly exists inside that category, truly fits into the box. And when we're seeing somebody, first, just seeing, you slow down the process very, very much. Body, colored shapes and body, and the colored shapes body and person, and then category of the person is what comes up. And through that category, colored shapes, body, and person. And in all of this, there's an intermediary of the mental hologram, of course. That's Yatrantika. So if you slow it down even more, there's a, per, you know, colored shapes, I mean, is it really colored shapes? I mean, in a sense, say, look at this body with colored shapes, you know, there's a body, one of its characteristics is colored shapes, and uh, a person, external source of the cognition, so that's what substantially established means in the Sautrantika context, external, and I walk, you know, I, I walk into the room, and now there's a mental, so, and then I see, so there's a mental hologram now. So this becomes also an object of debate, because the mental hologram is one moment after the object that we're seeing. So, the false aspectarians say that that mental hologram is opaque, because what you're actually seeing no longer exists, because that's no longer happening. So they say it's like that. But uh, the true aspectarian says that, well, through it, you still see the conventional body and person, colored shapes, even though the colored shapes might be changing as they're moving. And there's the mental hologram. Through the mental hologram, you see the person, the body and the person. And, uh, but, First moment, we're only, you know, it's what's really certain, you know, we can only sort of get the defining characteristics of the body and the uh, person. But remember, Sautrantika, we said that the defining characteristic of the person is, on the, is found on the side of mental consciousness. So this also is one of the reasons for that uh, delay. In that first moment, we're not aware of mental consciousness and the person. Only seeing a body. Well, uh, the body is a basis for imputation of the person. But to be able to actually ascertain defining characteristic of the body, you have to somehow put it together with, well, is mental consciousness as well, and that's, I'm seeing a person. Not a computer generated, not a hologram, not a, you know, a hologram or a dummy or a, uh, a robot or a uh, computer generated uh, voice. You figure out, ah, it's a person with consciousness. But that's very, very quick, isn't it? Think about that. Does that make sense? What about if you're certain that it's a person, but it's not really? If you're certain that it's a person, but, it, but not really, that is... Uh, distorted or deception, deceptive cognition. And that happens with non-conceptual cognition, like when you see two moons if you're cross-eyed, or if you have jaundice, as they say, seeing a white snow mountain is yellow, mm -hmm. or seeing a blur. When you take your glasses off, 
And you could be certain that there are two moons, whereas there's not, that the snow mountain is yellow. So that's distorted. And you also have to distinguish that from deceptive. So deceptive appearance appears as though the per, you know the person is uh, self-sufficiently knowable. It appears so. I'm just hearing the voice on the phone. I'm talking to a person. I'm hearing a person. It seems as though person is self-sufficiently knowable. I'm not aware that there's a... I'm hearing a sound. What I'm ascertaining is a sound and that it's the sound of a person. Person because there's consciousness. Which of course is sometimes very difficult to, to tell. when we get some sort of recorded message with a person's voice. You don't know. That's an interesting example. When you hear a recorded message of a voice. Is it a person speaking? Is it? No. Yes. It's a person speaking, but the person isn't there. A person made the message. If you say there is a person speaking, then it means there is a person at that time. That means there's consciousness speaking at that time. But it's just a defining characteristic of that person, so it's not, it's not there. There's no consciousness speaking at that time. Okay, so that gets into the semantic difference of how we state the proper, how we state the situation, how we describe the situation. Is it the voice of a person? Is it the voice of a person speaking? Is different from, is it a, per, a voice of a person speaking now? So it's not the voice of a person speaking now, but the voice of a person. That you only know. Well, you can infer it. You can ask a question and they don't re reply. But they still <laughs> could be a person that's there, but they just don't reply. <laughs> These are very difficult questions. How do we know? But this is going off on a tangent. But you understand conceptual cognition. And then fitting it into a category, the category we have, you know, the defining characteristics of the category, which is a uh, composite of all the uh, different times that we've known the person. So it's a composite characteristic that we put together of the person. And then each time that we see or hear that voice, we fit that voice and the person into that category. The voice and it's voice of this person. And it's this person. So we make it quite specific. And then we can have all sorts of associations with that category. What's and remember when the difference between Sautrantika and Chittamatra, all these characteristics, Sautrantika said, well, there are defining characteristics of those characteristics, you know, like nice person, you know, good person, young, old person, whatever, objectively on the side of the object. And so the defining characteristic is not only a defining characteristic of a 
body and a person and a nice person and a fat person or a pretty person or whatever. So both those, you know, knowable object and what kind of knowable object and all the qualities of it. That's defining characteristic on the side of the object. And Chudamatra says, no, that uh, the only defining characteristic on the side of the object is what makes it into a knowable thing. A, knowable, a validly knowable object. And all these other characteristics, you know, and a kind, what kind of object it is. But all these other characteristics, you know, of the name and, you know, um, fat, young, who they are, all these sort of things, that's just coming from the side of the concept, the side of the category. And Sautrantika said, well, they have to match. So it's on the side of the object and on the side of the concept. And uh, for both making it a uh, knowable object and all the qualities. And then Prasangika comes along and says, nothing is on the side of the object. The defining characteristics of it being a, a knowable object, like love or like or green or blue, and all the characteristics of it, the qualities, all of that's established in terms of the concept. And by convention, we agree that it's this or that. But that's merely by convention. Nothing on the side of the object. There's no name tag on the <laughs> back of your body that has your name. That makes you you. With that name. So we had a progression in terms of understanding uh, the relation between objective reality and uh, concepts, conceptualization. Okay, can we go on? Can I ask you? You have another question, please. What's the difference between person and the category of person? What's the difference between what? Person. Person and the category of a person. Um, the difference is that, uh, well, person, first of all, is talking about an individual being. So the way that person is being used in uh, uh, Buddhism is a synonym for a sentient being. So that's a little bit awkward to say that uh, this worm is a person, or this ghost is a person but it would apply to all sentient beings. So it's a sentient being, something with a mind. So a, an individual person, an individual being, is just an individual, but all of them fit into the category of beings, sentient beings that all have the characteristic features of ignorance, for example of unawareness. Or an easier example would be, for instance, apple. There's the ca or dog. There's the category of dog, but all these individual, you know, a, uh, a German Shepherd, a Bulldog, a Chihuahua, a Dachshund, a Spaniel, all these things are individual things, but they're all dogs. So they fit into the category of dog. So there's Lars and Andreas and Katya, you know, Matoya. All of these are individual people and they fit into the category of people. So I can see all of you as people. Well, that becomes very interesting, actually. Do you see all of these objects in front of you as just objects? When you objectify somebody, 
or people, or do you see them as persons? And then what is your uh, association for a person? We have this in the sensitivity training. If you can see that they're a person, they have feelings just as I do, they want to be happy just as I do, and they want to be unhappy. They don't want to be unhappy just as I don't want to be unhappy. So it's important to, maybe that's the difference. First, aha, now I think we've gotten somewhere. First we see a body, colored shapes in a body. It's a person, but actually in that first moment, it's just an object. And only in the second moment, the second phase, that we realize this is a person, and then all the, and then you can fit it into the category. It's a person, they have feelings, they have, they want to be happy, they want to be liked, they want to be taken seriously. All these other things. So that I think is a very good way of understanding the distinction. First, we're aware that they're a body, that they're an object, and then, even though from their side it's a person, and then we're aware that it's a person. But when you become aware that it's a person, then don't you already need a category of a person? Without category, well, it is a very quick process that uh, you put them into the category. But if you think of the category, uh, the category usually comes with uh, associations. So you're sitting in the Uban and you see these colored shapes on the other side of the car. You're seeing bodies. How conscious are we that these are persons? And then you fit it into the category, then you see, oh, these are people. And then you start to fit it into the category of, well, hey, they're people and they have lives and they have, you know, emotions and wishes and things like that. If you really slow down the process. That's a gap between the colored shape plus body and the person, right? A gap between what? The, the time gap between first you recognize the color, the shape, and body. Yeah. Then you recognize that it's a person. Person. There's a little gap. There's a little gap. Then, yes. Then you would not. then you would fit it into the category of persons and what is associated with persons. This part I don't understand because when you say that person, it's already you are putting the imposing the category of a person. You're seeing a person, you don't necessarily give the name. Giving the name is with the concept. Non-conceptual. Non-conceptual. You see that? It says non-conceptual. It's still so non-conceptual. Conceptually understanding that it's not a thing. You're non-conceptually ascertaining that it's a person, is the way that it's said. Decisive. Accurate and decisive. Then the conceptual comes that and then his right. name what kind it's a person what kind of thing is it what kind of thing am I seeing no the point that you make the question that you're asking is a very significant one but actually you know how do you know you don't know what it is in terms of what category it fits into. Do you know what it is? I mean, this is, you're distinguishing it, is what's happening. So distinguishing it from what it's not. Hmm. I don't know. Let's think about that. Not
Let's take an easier example. We are hearing sounds We can just distinguish that they're sounds, or we can distinguish words. We might not know what the words are or what the words mean, but you can distinguish that there are words when you hear a foreign language. When you hear a foreign language. First, it's just sounds. that you're sure, I'm sure that this person is speaking, and then I'm sure that they are speaking words, but I don't know what, uh, you know, I'm distinguishing, you know, discrete units, so they must be words, but I don't know what they are, I don't know what they mean, I couldn't repeat them. a very good example for when a child acquires language. In the beginning it will be just arbitrary sounds. Right. And then you distinguish that there is some pattern going on. Mm -hmm. And then in the end you you acquire the, the category for the sound. That's probably what happens when a child acquires a language. Right. And then you have to teach the child that the sound is associated with an object. That it has a meaning because the sound from its own side doesn't have inherent in a meaning. But I always wonder, because to, to learn, for example, a word that has no, no object, you know, like, like a, a, an, an adverb or an adjective or something like that, you, know, you have to, from you know, inference or from the circumstances of its use, to, to understand where you use that or what category it fits in. Well, adjectives and adverbs are descriptive. Or, or prepositions or something like that, which is, I think, that a, can point to, you know? Well, a preposition, on, and you, you put something on something, off, under, yeah. over, inside, you can do that with sign language. So this is what uh, distinguishing is. Distinguishing just makes it into a discrete thing. You distinguish that it's a, a, you know, a distinct thing. Distinguish, literally, you distinguish it from what it's, what it's not. So I can distinguish sounds and I can distinguish then the words. Words are also this uh, type of uh, non-congruent affecting variable. Collection of syllables. And then there's a collection of words, that's a phrase. And then there's a collection of phrases, which is a sentence. You don't hear a sentence in one moment. It's an imputation. Right? You don't even hear. Pardon? You don't even hear a word in one moment. You don't even hear words in one moment. You hear a syllable. You hear a syllable. But, well, this is interesting. With a sentence, you hear a syllable. Are you hearing a person speaking a sentence and speaking words? Yes. The syllable doesn't just exist on its own. Are you aware that they are make, that they are saying a sentence? Well, after you hear, you know, one of the sounds. As it goes on, yes, you would be aware that you, you are hearing a sentence, but you don't know the whole sentence yet. Or a story. 
you hear only part at a time. I'm hearing a story, I'm listening to a story, but I can't fit it into the category of, you know, it's this story. Well, maybe you could. <laughs> maybe we should go on with uh... Maybe we could go on. Yeah. So, the point that I uh, wanted to uh, make is with starting with Chittamatra, they make a difference between self-sufficiently knowable substantial existence, substantially existent phenomenon, and substantial existence as something that is knowable alone. So these are two terms, and they say that uh, you could also understand self-sufficiently knowable substantially existent phenomenon um, as meaning substantial existence as something that is knowable alone. And then it defines the substantial existence as something that is knowable alone as something functional phenomenon that have existence established as something able to stand here. In other words, they're functional phenomenon able to stand firmly, which means all by themselves. So here, although functional phenomenon, that's the term that they're using, normally means non-static phenomenon. Here it can also mean just a validly knowable phenomenon. These are just technical terms. What they're saying is that if you understand self-sufficiently knowable in a secondary meaning of something that's able to be understood by itself, then you can have things that are definitively self-sufficiently knowable, like for instance the table, but you can also have imputedly, know imputedly knowable phenomenon that are able to stand on their own and be known on their own. So these are phenomena, namely voidness, that is imputedly knowable. You have to know the basis first. But then you can just know voidness by itself. You don't have to have the basis and voidness itself appear simultaneously and be known simultaneously. This is how they get around it. And Madhyamaka accepts this as well. So there are going to be some imputedly knowable phenomenon, like persons and categories, that First you have to know the basis, and then the basis plus the imputation on it, the category or person. And there are other things, namely just selflessness of persons and selflessness of uh, uh, phenomenon and true stoppings. These things that first you have to know the basis, but then you can know selflessness or voidness just by itself. It, it's able to be known something that is knowable alone. So they make this uh, distinction. And because of that, then if you have a non-conceptual cognition of selflessness, after this sequence of moment one and moment two, where the first colored shapes, body, and the uh, are known, involved objects, then the um, colored shapes, body, and person are the involved objects. They're known with certainty. In both those moments, there's the deceptive appearance of how the person exists. The person appears to exist self-sufficiently knowable. So then, the third moment, you have to refute the deceptive appearance. 
And then, if this is non-conceptual, Sautrantika was saying, during total absorption on selflessness, the colored shapes, body, and person, they appear, they're appearing object, an involved object, but without a deceptive appearance. And only implicitly do you know the selflessness of the person. And that's known conceptually because it's a static phenomenon that can only be known conceptually, according to their definitions. So that's total absorption. And then, in the subsequent attainment period, immediately after the total non-conceptual absorption on selflessness of a person, you have exactly the same, except that explicit, what appears, is now the body, I mean the colored shapes, the body, and the person, but now again it has the deceptive appearance. And implicitly we still know the selflessness of a person. So it's in this subsequent attainment period, immediately following the total absorption, that we understand illusion-like voidness. It's like an illusion. It appears deceptively to exist in an impossible way, but we know implicitly, without that total absence, that voidness appearing. Whereas in, so that's how it's done in Sautrantika, but in Chittamatra, and it will be in Madhyamaka as well, both Svatantrika and Prasangika, during total absorption on voidness, only the selflessness of a person appears, and there's no deceptive appearance. It's able to stand alone. And implicitly, nothing is known. Implicitly, there's no implicit apprehension. It's not implicitly that you know the aggregate, the, the body, just that it doesn't appear. You are only totally absorbed on voidness, no such thing. And then, the subsequent attainment, it's the same as what you had in Sautrantika. Colored shapes, body and person appear, explicitly apprehended, with a deceptive appearance and implicitly, without it appearing, we know it's voidness. This is what you're calling moment four, and five are actually moments four. Moment means either very, very quickly, one sixty-fourth of a finger snap, but more likely it is a phase. The word in Tibetan means both an actual moment or a phase. Or a phase. Mm -hmm. okay. A phase of moments. Subsequent attainment means like after mm -hmm. the meditation. After, the, you're still in meditation, but after the total absorption. You're a little bit coming back. Uh, in a sense. In a sense. And in some explanations that subsequent attainment could last even when you get up. That's why some people translate it as post-meditation. But in order for it to be generated, it has to follow immediately after total absorption. It can't just, just walking around seeing everything like an illusion, but without having that uh, total absorption, this is just conceptual and it's likely not to have uh, terribly much depth of meaning. Helpful, but not really definitive. You haven't really refuted impossible existence. Only when you impute, when you refute the object to be refuted, whatever level <coughs> we're refuting, can you really, when you see the deceptive understanding, have that correct implicit understanding that it's like, of, of its voidness.
Therefore, you realize it's like an illusion. Am I right to think that the top part with moments one, two, and three, those are rather short moments? In, in perception, <laughs> they would usually be quite short. Mm -hmm. That uh, we see something, first moment you see it. According to Sautrantika, they would say that's only one tiny moment. And then you have subsequent cognition, it's called which is no longer fresh, but still it could be accurate and decisive. So still we have this distinction between whether it's just accurate but not decisive about the person, so just accurate of the colored shapes in the body but not of the person, or also of the person. And then they say you have a phase of Inattentive uh, cognition. Inattentive is not a good way of translating. It means non-determining cognition. You're no longer decisive through the sensory apparatus. And you need that as a tiny moment to make the transition to non-conceptual mental cognition. So now you switch channels. It's still non-conceptual and then you have conceptual cognition. So they actually break it up into first uh, bare non-conceptual, then subsequent uh, non-conceptual, then non-determining, then mental non-conceptual, then conceptual. So five moments, if you want to get it uh, more precise according to Sautrantika. So this is a simplification of that. This is a simplification. Okay. And according to Shautrantika, there is no non-conceptual realization of selfness of person? There is, according to Sautrantika, when we, first of all, when you have non-conceptual cognition of selflessness of persons in Sautrantika, this is with yogic bare perception, it's called. It is with the uh, combined pair of shamatha and vipassana, which can either be conceptual or non-conceptual, that combined pair. But when it's non-conceptual, then you get path of seeing, for example, seeing pathway of mind. So non-conceptual through yogic cognition. Yogic bare cognition does not, according to them, cannot, first of all, it's non-conceptual in this case, and it can't have as an appearing object a static phenomenon. Static phenomenon can only be known by yogic bare perception conceptually. However, according to Sautrantika, and Chittamatra accepts it as well, there is something called reflexive awareness which comes along with it. And reflexive awareness is like the recording device that non-conceptually cognizes the consciousness and the mental factors, in other words, the whole cognition, basically, so that it uh, is remembered. Consciousness cognizing the consciousness itself. Right, a separate piece of consciousness cognizing consciousness itself, which then, of course, Shantideva and others refute from the Madhyamaka point of view, a sword can't cut itself. But nevertheless, they Sautranska and Chittamatra assert this, and that selflessness is known non-conceptually by this reflexive awareness. This is how they describe it. So it's known conceptually, implicitly by non-conceptual bare yogic cognition, 
and implicitly it doesn't appear, but it appears to the reflexive awareness, and the reflexive awareness knows it non-conceptually. Now, of course, the question comes up, you know, normally you say reflexive awareness is only aware of the consciousness and mental factors, but uh, it seems as though in this case it's also considered aware of the yogic perception, cognizing that it is cognizing selflessness. Comes together in a package, it seems. Certainly from a Chinamacha point of view, it comes together in a package from the same seed, same cognitive source. Anyway, these are things that we need to reflect on. So we can spend a few minutes reflecting on it and then we'll end. Or as your homework, you can reflect on this. I mean, it's very, very difficult to have non-conceptual cognition in which only voidness appears. It certainly would be much easier <laughs> as a Sautrantika to have appearance of the basis, but appearing non-deceptively and implicitly no voidness, but to have nothing appear, that's hard to even imagine. That's why in Tantra, the Nutra Yoga Tantra, it's described as the appearance of the clear light mind which is the appearance of a very deep, dark blue, like uh, when the sky doesn't have sunlight, doesn't have moonlight, and uh, doesn't have complete darkness, like uh, just when it's starting to turn into dawn. That color, that's what it would look like. But that's only described in a Nutra Yoga Tantra. Okay, so let's end with a dedication. We think whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come from this may go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for all beings to reach the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of all.